0: How's it going, everybody? Thank you for tuning back into the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the last two episodes that I released after a couple of weeks of being uh, out of pocket, so to speak, but it's great to be back. And today's episode doesn't disappoint either. Every once in a while, you have a conversation that touches you in a way uh, that just you didn't expect. And this one brought me to tears, I'm going to be honest. My guest is a former guest of the podcast, and I met him through martial arts and jiu-jitsu. He's a 10th Planet jiu-jitsu fighter. And we talked about his background in the military. He was uh, in the Marines, and after he left the Marines, he actually went back to Iraq as a private citizen, and he fought alongside the Peshmerga against ISIS as a freedom fighter it was a fantastic conversation. And although I was pretty sure he had some things that he had to deal with from his time over there, I didn't realize quite how severe the PTSD he was experiencing was. And it was so bad that for a hundred plus days, he was experiencing psychosis and wasn't even able to put a sentence together. I am so thankful that one, he was able to get his life back on track and that he's been willing to come on the podcast again, and share the journey and the process that he took to get himself to where he is today. And I'm even more thankful and gracious that he trusted me enough to have the conversation with me. It's uh, certainly not lost on me the gravity of what we talked about. And I can only hope that anyone who listens to this gets the same impact that I did. And that you share this with people. Because I think, Uh, At least myself, I didn't realize just maybe how widespread PTSD is, and there's a lot to be learned in this conversation. So do me a favor, share it with your friends. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast. Click the subscribe button on whatever platform it is you listen on. There's also a YouTube channel that if you go to YouTube and you search The Curious Jones, we just started it. We're trying to grow that so subscribe there you'll get alerts whenever i drop new content and you can follow along on social media at that curious jones it's the best way to communicate with me let me know who else i should be having on the show and any episodes that you've enjoyed feedback positive or negative i appreciate it a ton please give it up for my friend shaka curtis <laughs>
1: Great to see you. Hey, you too. That's a cool shirt you got on there, bro.
0: <laughs> I know, right? It's you know this guy he, uh he's got something cool going on with a great message. And uh yeah, it's Dude, first let me just tell you aside from being great to see you that um, I really appreciate your a willingness to come on and have the conversation that we're planning to have today, but that you even trust to have it with me. It's a difficult topic and I think that in and of itself is probably a reason why a lot of people suffer in silence. And I'm just thankful. You know, you said, hopefully we can help a couple people out today. I'm, I'm sure we will. And it only happens because you're willing to have that conversation with me. So thank you. And I do appreciate it a ton. And it doesn't, it doesn't come and hit me lightly, the gravity of, of what we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm super grateful. Um, I'm super grateful. This is, uh, this is something that I've been working on when it comes to making sure that I was okay. I've been working on me for years, but when it comes to making sure that other people are are okay, this is something that I jumped on, um, literally a week after we made our first contact. We did our podcast. We were all in on talking about, uh, the service that I had done and, uh, the fighting that I was doing. And then, um, I left that podcast and the next month I had to get a surgery done. I, uh, I had just finished fighting the number one amateur fighter in California and welterweight and blew both my shoulders. No, I, it was crazier than that. I fought that guy blew my left shoulder audibly. People heard my shoulder tear. And then, uh, there was this guy who was talking trash to one of my teammates. And I figured I could beat him with one arm before I had my surgery. So I went out and I fought that guy with a torn shoulder and choked him out in a cage. And then I got my surgery. But uh, yeah, this, um, the, 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 the common denominator when it comes to PTSD is actually really astonishing. If you, if you go in too quick and trying to help somebody Almost universally, they will say, "You don't know what I've been through," and that's kind of it's kind of like a, a a door that they use to shut themselves out from getting the opportunity to tell their story. So uh, I'm super grateful for you for giving me a, a platform to be able to to put some stuff out there that I think uh, could help people understand that their story isn't. Um, their story isn't the only one.
0: Well, why don't we just start there? I, I think, you know, we'll spare the the background. If you guys want, you can go back and listen to the first episode that we did together where Shaka really kind of dives into his past background and, you know, time in the service and, you know, all that you did. But you you say that it's something that people don't want to share. So Is that somewhat of a defense mechanism and maybe you can just try to illustrate to a layperson PTSD and I'm sure there's varying ranges of it. Um, but you know what was life like for you in all the years subsequently you know from the trauma that you in, ensued and you know is it a specific trauma or is it just the accumulation of all of the traumas that you've gone through?
1: So from from what I've learned, um, my psyche had been built around an amalgamation of traumas, a, a, uh, um, a diverse group of different life-changing events that led to me living my life the way that I had. And for me, um, living life with PTSD, meant doing extreme amounts of work in order to not have to deal with the stuff that I had going on um, it meant going through periods of um, full on full-on paranoia it meant having vertigo meaning um, sometimes it feels like dizziness or it feels like... Um, It feels like you're off kilter, almost like you're off balance. Um, It meant that I would have periods of time where I would simply forget where I was, what I was doing, who I was doing something for, if I was doing something for somebody. And um, at its worst, um, I was diagnosed psychotic. I was... Um, I was babbling. I was pacing my house for hours. Um, I was seeing things. Um, it's a. Uh, it, it was something that had taken my life from me, um, and I had to make the active, the active decision to continue to live, and to continue to live without as much reactive fear otherwise I wasn't living a life that would be worth living if that makes sense it
0: does was was this like non-stop or are there moments during this time where you feel like you've got your footing or is it truly a hundred days of just being you know
1: out of your mind so to speak the hundred days was the hundred days you know Um, during that hundred days, I got about three hours of sleep per day. Um, I was also doing three hours of meditation to like repair my mind, but I was getting about three hours of sleep per day. Um, I didn't have control of my speech. Like I would start talking and then I would start saying things that just didn't make sense and I couldn't stop talking. And, um, it was the most painful thing was that I had a fiance at the time and, um, it, in trying to talk to her, my speech was coming from a place that was not me. But I felt as though if I could get someone to understand me, I could escape whatever mental prison that I had been in. But before me going to that depth, I had a six-figure job. I was, I was rising in the corporate world. And the reason why I was rising in the corporate world because was because driving eight hours and working an additional eight hours, you know, putting in um, 14, 16 hours a day was no problem. Because for me, that allowed me to not have to think about or not have to deal with the different aspects of my personality that were reactive to the things that I had experienced. Mm-hmm. So like, it's, it was like this, um, this unbridled fuel, this fire that allowed me to um, just execute in the corporate world. I mean, it was perfect, because I didn't have that. um, I didn't have that heart to tell me that I was doing something wrong. I didn't have to worry about selling something to somebody who didn't need it because I didn't even slow down enough to think about the types of stuff that I was doing. And ultimately I I quit that job because it was soul crushing. But in quitting that job, I had freed up enough time for me to start to witness my own thoughts, start to experience what it is to live in my own head. And I replaced that job oddly enough With jujitsu, martial arts, boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, fighting as a whole. And I I think it's an amazing thing because I've been listening to Tim Kennedy. I've been listening to Khabib and like, they'll, they're talking about training five hours a day. They're talking about training, um, four hours a day. When I was in camp, I was training six hours a day, five days a week, like go thinking back to that level of output I mean that's just freaking insane but the reason why I was doing it was because I didn't want to have to not that I didn't want to have to, but I was scared of my own mind.
0: I mean, isn't it a lot of reasons why people drink do drugs I mean you you've in some way found your solace through this physical output. you know I don't I don't know if that' resonates with you, but for me, I see a lot of people who, Choose a different road, and maybe it doesn't even allow them to ever get themselves back on track because they're covering up those feelings with a heroin addiction, or you know they're covering that up with a sex addiction or something else.
1: I actually love the fact that you are mentioning addiction right now because PTSD is an addiction. Like, I, I there's a there's a phrase that I teach people, and it's that trauma seeks trauma. Hmm. Have you, uh, have you ever had an addiction before?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm such an addictive personality. And I, <laughs> I mean, you've got me, my gear spinning right now, as you say that, you know, PTSD is a trauma and we can unpack that for hours and hours on a separate podcast for me, but um, yeah, I'm very addictive personality and all, of, all that I do, both mentally and physically.
1: Hmm. So my, my first addiction to a substance, like real addiction, I, d- I have done cocaine and I was addicted to cocaine the minute, the minute that I did it. That's why I don't do cocaine. But um, the, the most significant addiction to a substance that I ever had was my addiction to weed. And I would think of the dumbest reasons to do weed and I would justify it in my head. So I would say to myself, well, I'm gonna to go to the post office and there's gonna be a lot of people there. I don't really like crowds. so I may as well smoke weed before I go. Or man, I'd really like to focus on playing this video game because I love video games. I can't wait to smoke weed so that I can get really focused into it. Oh, I'm gonna stretch. And I'm going to, if I'm gonna stretch, I really wanna feel my body. So I'm gonna smoke some weed. Oh my, you know, you see what I'm saying?
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> that's, um,
1: that's my addiction to marijuana. PTSD is the same exact thing. PTSD has a, a program that your mind gets placed into that justifies these defensive actions that you're taking. For example, um, I right now I'm in the first successful relationship that I've had in over five years since I left my fiance. And um, one of the things that I used to tell myself is, if I'm with a woman, she's going to cheat on me. So I may as well cheat on her first. That way, it doesn't hurt as much. Um, I used to tell myself, you know, if she's going on a work trip, she's going on a work trip to go be away from me. So I may as well do something so that I can be away from her as well. Um, when it relates to work, when it relates to work, if, if my boss were to to highlight something that I've done, I would say that he's trying to highlight what I'm doing so that he can manipulate me so that he can kind of get me to work harder so that he can put me in a position where he can get me to do something and not pay me for it. And these ideas do come from real world things. They, they do come from real experiences that I've had. Uh, I think one of the craziest things that I've realized is that for, for a person who's in a trusting relationship, cheating on the other person's side, like if you're in a trusting relationship and you're all in, you're fully committed. If your partner cheats, you experience the same level of trauma that you would experience if you had been in a car crash. Hmm. The same level of trauma that you would experience if you had seen your your friend get shot. So like, not only was I in this, this traumatic cycle, not only had I experienced traumas because of what I had been through, like women didn't know how to talk to me because I had PTSD and I'd be going through an episode and she wouldn't know what to do. So she'd become emotionally distant and then suddenly she's in another man's bed and that, that trauma, like I said, it's an, it's a, an accumulation, it's a, it's a buildup you know, and it's the same thing at work, you know, work in the corporate world is absolutely treacherous. There is this fascinating thing that happens where people decide to put their money before your livelihood, just their ability to make up a story about another human being or lie about what they're doing or what someone else is doing or what they had done. It's a part of the game. To I, them, to I them. can't play that game. Hmm.
0: It's I ironic can't. that we're having this yeah. conversation, man. I, I, I don't want to diverge this, but I mean, no, I, for the last 12 years, I've been in that wash cycle of corporate America. And this past Friday, I took the pictures off of my office walls that were, you know, overlooking the business park and I left and decided I'm not going back. And it's certainly a scary decision. And I've slowly been making decisions like this over time. I've talked a lot about it on here about kind of freeing myself from other people's control of my happiness, because I find myself chasing the next thing and as I get further and further up that ladder, I'm like, I'm never satisfied. And I need to figure out what makes me happy. Because we get one opportunity, as far as I know, to live this life. And I know a lot of people who are wildly successful financially and professionally with a lot of money, you know, have the cars, the houses, you know, go on the cool vacations and stuff. But deep down inside, knowing them on a personal level, they're very unhappy. And I, I just like told myself, I can't do it. And I've been telling myself that for a long time and like baby steps, but I finally decided to make that leap. And it's ironic and I'm sorry, I'm hijacking what is your story, but it's ironic that you're telling me this about corporate America and, you know, just how it was soul crushing. And uh, I'm finding myself right now in the tail end of that very same thought process.
1: Well, honestly, I don't think you're hijacking anything. I mean, look at the shirts we're wearing.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Now the it's, it uh, makes me happy. That's yeah. why I came up with that phrase. I had to, if I was going to continue to live, because when I was going through this, this pit, when I was in my psychosis, I was, uh, I was 27 years old. My granddaddy right now is a Tai Chi grandmaster. Um, very healthy. And he's going to be here for a long time. My great, great grandmother cooks breakfast every morning and serves the entire part of the family that lives with her. I'm stuck here. You know what I'm saying? If I'm going to live my life, I'm going to find a way to do it in a way that makes me happy. And um, when I tore both my shoulders, training six hours a day, was no longer that avenue. It's not possible to continue to train for six hours a day with two torn shoulders. But in addition to that, I had to ask myself why I had to train so hard, just to be okay. You know, and um, it led me on a path of breaking down These these stories, these traumas, these these ideas that I had that built the way that I told myself I had to live life, so that I could do it in a way that makes me happier.
0: I want to talk about the process that you went through because you shared with me kind of like you put this multi-step process of what you were going to go. You like deliberate had deliberate focus in in approaching this. But I wanted to ask one more thing. Um, do you feel like there are certain people, certain personality types who are predisposed to PTSD?
1: Absolutely. There are those. There, I call them the artists, the creators. There are, there are people who are completely content working nine hours a day at Walmart, getting on a bus driving home and watching tv until they go to sleep they are completely ignorant to the pain that that stagnicity inflicts on their mind body and spirit it's it have you ever did you watch that um that that movie called free guy no i didn't it makes me think about a video game okay And if you're playing a video game, there are characters that will be in that place in every moment as you walk around that corner. There's the guy who's behind the counter. Grand Theft Auto, right? You got the cashier in every store. You got the gang members on the corner. You know what I'm saying? Those people are content with life and with what life gives them. However, there are artists, there are creators there are these people who seek to find a way of building their signature in this world. And when they, are, when they experience pain due to their attempt at creating their signature, they experience a deeper trauma than that person who's used to that lifestyle would because they realize that who they are is a danger to their ability to live life in happiness. Hmm. And that's the code that I have to, not that I have to, but I choose to, that I enjoy breaking for other people. I get people to realize that they can live happily within their own expression without the fear of the consequences of being themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you mentioned earlier that sometimes the things that you're, Maybe stressing about the anxieties that you have, the assumptions that you're making, they are justified by past experiences that you've gone through. I can resonate with that because I find myself getting very, I'll use the word, perturbed with situations. And I take things very personally sometimes. And that's something I'm really trying to work on. How do I not take things personally? Because I'll see other people, they'll go through the same scenario, they're not triggered. And it's not that they haven't had similar situations or circumstances happen in a negative way that could maybe shift their purview to think, man, this is going to be bad, or I'm going to have a problem with it. But they still just approach as approach it as if nothing has ever happened, right? They look at it really like glass half full, you know, to simplify it. And I, no matter how hard I try, like I still get this feeling in my stomach when I'm like, yeah, but this could happen. And it's, it's like, I don't want to ever be in that moment and kick myself and say, see, I should have known better. But I mean, it's like, I sit back and it's like saying, that's like saying, I, I got in a car accident. I should have never drove. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's like, how do you, maybe you can kind of elaborate on this, if this is something you've dealt with. um, But how do you, make yourself okay and accepting of things not being perfect because I think that's really what it is. It's like coming in with an expectation that, you know, my day is not going to be perfect, but it's going to be perfectly imperfect. And that's
1: all that it needs to be. And that's you're hitting on. I knew we were going to help some people. (laughs) So there is, a um there's a concept that i have and it is that we must believe in the potential of a positive outcome okay so right now um let's say let's say as a kid you were allergic to grapes right you're allergic to grapes if you eat grapes you throw up but as a kid you know that you loved grapes and you're on this date with this super hot chick and she's going to feed you like a king. She's got these grapes dangling over your face. Okay. Now, are you going to slap the grapes out of her hand or are you going to ask yourself, maybe this time I'm not going to get sick if I eat these grapes? I'm eating grapes. I mean,
0: huh? I'm eating the grapes.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know, we know that allergies can leave. We know that there's a moment where you can become less allergic to something. Obviously there's a, this is a completely different story. Like if you get anaphylaxis, you're not going to, you're not going to play this game, but let's apply it to something else. Let's apply it to something else. If your boss is gonna send you on an appointment to meet with somebody who's three hours away, and the last time you did that, you had a really terrible appointment, the next time he offers it to you, are you just gonna turn it down to avoid going on that drive and having a a terrible appointment? Every salesperson is gonna tell you that you have to expect a positive outcome. So that you can go on that appointment and treat it as if the result will be the best result that you can potentially have. And when I was in sales, I can tell you if you got an appointment that's really far away, chances are you're going to have a high value appointment because uh, they're they're away from the city, and it's hard for anyone to get out there to get the job done anyway. Um. So I, I'll ask you: is there is there a specific is there a specific thing that triggers you? Is there a specific series of events, whether it be a friend, co-worker, partner? Is there anything specifically that triggers you?
0: For me, it's it's disrespect. Like I and I and it gets blurred and muddied with some people because for me, I can be pushed. I love to be pushed. Um, being an athlete, being the oldest of, you know, four brothers and 12 grandkids, and I've always I've almost kind of seeked out that discomfort of having people push me to be the best version of myself, but I can't stand being disrespected in how I'm talked to, um, whether I'm in the process of being pushed or not. And I think a lot of times uh, people may think they're pushing me and they're actually being disrespectful, or at least I feel that I'm being disrespected. And I've had to weigh this a lot because I'm like, maybe I'm just really oversensitive, but there is something to it because I'll say that there's a handful of people in my life who have really pushed me harder than anybody else. And I've never felt disrespected from them. So it's not myself necessarily resisting, um, you know, people pushing me or, outside opinion, because I can be receptive to that. And I've seen the best version of myself emerge from that pressure. But I am very triggered when I feel disrespected. And I'm sure it's rooted in something from childhood. But
1: um, yeah, it's, it's my biggest pet peeve. I that you are not alone. (laughs) You are not alone. Um, in fact, as we as we begin to connect with women more in the workplace in our projects in our partnerships disrespect is something that's going to come up a lot and it's not because that woman is intentionally disrespecting us or uh, or feminine man right we are alpha males we are, we are fighters we come from a realm where you say what you mean in the way that you mean it hmm. however there are there's the other you know 75 to 60 uh 60 to 75 percent of the population who has no idea what it's like to do that you know the painters the the djs the 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 guys who work with their hands and craft on computers and you know color their hair 15 different colors not counting sean o'malley right yeah <laughs> the thing is their language mannerisms and morality come from a place that is completely unique of us. So their intention, 90% of the time, I'd say 99, 99% of the time, their intention was not to disrespect us. So a part of what you said was right. There is something in you that's raising the red flag, saying that this person is disrespecting me there's an initial emotional reaction where we feel the flare come up in our bodies and our eyes start to see a little bit of fire and the, the heart rate goes up, the blood vessels open. Mm -hmm. But if we sit with that, not only can we look and introspect and find out where that emotional response is coming from, because it's not the person that you're talking to oftentimes that, that emotion is coming from some time in childhood or some time in your previous life, right? Uh, where not your previous life is in like a past life, but literally your previous work life, your previous, whoever you were before you are this person that you are today. There's something that happened when someone disrespected you like that, that led to you having to make a severe uh, day changing decision. Whereas this person is simply, trying to communicate in a way that they best know how, and they're probably afraid of having to communicate in that way, right? We receive that, we have our initial emotional response, and then we seek our own discernment. What does that mean? That means that we take the time to get a better understanding of what they're attempting to say. Because I think about somebody trying to disrespect me to my face. I had to learn, I had to learn that there is no way that someone would openly try to disrespect me knowing my background. Like if I clearly articulate who I am and I feel that someone's trying to disrespect me, I know that that's not the case. Do you, do you think that's where a lot of times, because
0: I I feel that right where it's always like you've in the past, I've felt like people are trying to be tricky. I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing there. You're not directly trying to be disrespectful but you're being disrespectful, and I, I have to be honest. There's times where I think I was probably dead on the money, and I, I nailed somebody for what they were. And I think there's other times where I'm so trying to get ahead of a situation, and I unjustly paint somebody into that corner of, "Hey, you're being disre," you're you're positioning yourself to be disrespectful, and I I, I wonder why it's always more often or not that I'm trying to position myself for the for the potential to be disrespected it's not always even that I was disrespected cuz to your point I, I mean it's very rare that I'm blatantly disrespected and even in those moments I'm almost caught off guard and I can laugh it off I'm like did you like did he really just say that or like somebody doesn't hold the door for you and just like something that's blatantly disrespectful I'll be almost kind of like brush it off and laugh whereas i feel like i get really annoyed when somebody tries to camouflage it where it's like you're you're being pretentious you're being fake to me right now you're minimizing what i'm trying to say but you're doing it in a way that's kind of sneaky i don't know what it is about that if it's it's got to be ego because even if they are why should i care that's where i'm at right now like i'm trying to jump leapfrog the whole thing and stop analyzing why they are, if they are, and why I am, and if I am, and just say, Why do I care regardless? Like, it doesn't matter. Let them disrespect me. Trauma
1: seeks trauma. If you're walking down the street and you step on a crack and you get a phone call and you find out that you broke your mama's back, right? The next time you turn the phone, you put the phone down, right? <laughs> As you walk down the street, you are going to be looking for cracks. Because you don't want to break your mama's back, you see what I'm saying? So if you if you hear someone say a series of words, or if you hear someone say something in a certain tone, and you had been disrespected before, you're going to seek, uh, you're going to seek situations where someone may disrespect you. Now here's where you can turn it around, because it doesn't just stop there, right? You guys continue on with life. It's not someone disrespects you and then you suddenly go to sleep and the day is over someone you feel as though someone disrespects you you have the opportunity to engage that moment with them and I, what i do is i i will re, re, I'll reply with what they had said to me you know like if someone were to say dude what's wrong with you you're supposed to get this done at 5 right i would return right back at them it was like Uh, I'm hearing you, I'm supposed to get this done at five. When you say what's wrong with me, what do you mean? And it puts them into this position where they have to clearly articulate where they're coming from. And not only does it help them to realize that I'm gonna come back at them with the same energy that they're giving me, but it also makes them check themselves and find out why they said that thing in that way. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately they could have just been through traffic Mm -hmm. gotten out of their car and said something to me that they were trying to say to someone who cut them off. And this is finally their opportunity to get it out. Does that make sense? A
0: thousand percent. Yeah.
1: Trauma seeks trauma. And it doesn't just, it doesn't just apply to those types of conversations where you may feel disrespected. It also applies to situations with, uh, I'll bring this up again, um, with men and women, because the path to having a successful relationship goes through so many speed bumps you know what I mean so say you're driving downtown uh on your lunch break and you're looking through the, the window of a restaurant and you see your girl talking to some guy right and you're like oh geez on oh, my lunch break too good you know so you go you get your lunch and you're pissed off the entire time that you're getting your lunch you eat your lunch you go to work you're pissed off the whole time you go to work and you look at your girl and you're like Oh no, we're not we're not having a good night tonight. I know what you did, but you don't say anything to her, right? Because you feel like you're just going to go so over the top. You're going to go so over the top if you get into a deep conversation with your girl about this guy that you saw her with, blah blah blah. What if that guy was her cousin? What if that guy was her brother? You know, we we don't have an immediate response towards a positive uh intent or a positive situation because that's not how our brain is built. The human brain is built to defend you. And that's why certain people have a cert, uh, a higher propensity towards PTSD. If your brain is built to defend you, trauma is going to make you seek another situation that would be traumatic.
0: I'm I'm gonna maybe go off the reservation here. <laughs> and- <laughs> and this isn't a knock on anybody, but it, you know, you, you also said earlier that, yeah, it's, it's a lot of artists. It's a lot of people maybe that have that. My mom would say empath, right? People that are, that are maybe connected to feelings and what what energies that are out there. Um, but all of the things that would lead somebody to not have these triggers or um, post-traumatic stresses from a collective things like I I almost don't want to be that person. Like if, which is maybe just like the craziest thing to say, because who wants to deal with post-traumatic stress? But I feel like if you don't have a little bit of that, then are you feeling anything? Are you like, how are you moving through life? Because I know a lot of people who I would say are like, they're not deep. You know, like I have a two and a half year old son. I make jokes all the time, but I somewhat mean it. Like I have conversations with him that have depth far deeper than some of my closest friends. And it's not a knock on them, but like, I would say that they do. And those are the people that don't really give a shit. They just kind of move through life. And it's like, like, eh, I'm good with it, whatever. I'm not, you know, they're that person around the corner, you know, they're content with the nine to five and there's our, there's a, I guess its own beauty in that. And again, I'm not trying to knock anybody, but I came into this, like, how do you, how do we eliminate PTSD? But I almost feel like, how do you do that in a world where it's occurring because people are sensitive and really capturing all of the feedback? Well,
1: there is a middle ground. There is a middle ground. And what you're talking about right now is one of the biggest things that hold men back. We we are almost afraid to allow ourselves to indulge in our feelings. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't allow yourself to effectively express what you're feeling, it will come out in a different way. It'll come out just like that guy who asked, you know, what are you doing? You know, that guy who was in that traffic and he got cut off and you wanted to say, what are you doing to that driver? But instead he said it to you, which made you feel disrespected. That's the same exact course of action that masculine men, mm-hmm. alpha males take. And we, we experience it at work where we have someone who's being disrespectful to us and we bring that negative energy home. We experience it at, uh, we experience it at home when our kid kicks us in the shin and we're already so ticked off that we don't do it, uh, we don't do anything then. We go out on the road, we start driving 15 miles over the speed limit, 20 miles over the speed limit and acting like we're a speed racer. It's not that, it's not that experiencing those emotions is a bad thing. It's that we, yeah. We should devise a plan to be able to experience those emotions in a way that is healthy and positive for our future. There is the initial emotional response, and then there's discernment. When when we talk about people who say that you don't know what I've been through, the craziest thing about trauma is that your first step to getting over it is expressing in detail exactly what happened to you. So someone says to you, you don't know what I've been through. As a friend, as a brother, as a partner, as a coach, as a leader, as a mentor, you say, please tell me what you've been through. And for the majority of uh, people who've experienced severe trauma, they realize they can't there are gaps in their memory of what happened. There are gaps in their language to detail the expression of what they felt. But after they get the the verbiage, after they get the rest, the peace of mind to be able to express exactly what they had been through, they get the opportunity to take a look at where they are in that moment. Even if they're dosed up on drugs, even if they're in a failing relationship, even if they're in a failing part of their job, they're still alive. They're okay enough to be able to have a conversation about something that they went through. And that's the first step. So so these, these emotions that we're afraid of being able to communicate, these emotions that we don't want to indulge in so that we don't end up like these weak-minded people who walk around not giving a damn about anything. I'm in, I'm in Austin, man. There's this whole culture of men who are just giving their wives away and letting other men do whatever they want with them. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. I'm not judging anybody. I, I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? And it's just like that passivity with which people choose to live life is not the outcome of alpha males understanding their emotions. The outcome is that we have the, the intellect to detail what we are experiencing so that we can help under, other people understand who we are. Hmm.
0: There's a great Jordan Peterson quote that I heard where he talks about, you, you know, people say you should be a pacifist. And you should be, you know, meek and mild and just, it's not the case. You should be a monster. You should be devouring of all things. And then you should learn how to control it. And that's as opposed to, you know, being a pacifist. And I found that really interesting. And it kind of, I think, leads to to what you're saying. It's like, and kind of what I was getting at is that it is a balance because that the more you sit here and talk, that's a balance that I've struggled with at times. It's like, how do I... How do I be the best version and go after all the things that I want to with the veracity that I need to, to make it happen without diluting or, you know, stepping all over the good parts of me and the, 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 you know, the, I don't, I don't want to disrupt the water so much that it's clouded, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a, ba- it is, it's a balance, a very difficult one. How did you, at your darkest hour, how did you find yourself in a direction that you were really searching for the answers? You know, you sent me this five, I think it was five steps where you, you know, distinctly said, Hey, I want to, want to head towards the science. Number one, I want to find the science and the, and the scientists and the experts in those fields was there a moment that you recall or what what was it that allowed you to even grab a hold of that
1: um i was i was babbling i had been pacing my house for five hours um so i would go i would get up i would get out of bed i would walk around my bed like left to right then i would go downstairs and then i would come back upstairs and then I would go into my closet. I would walk around my closet and just pacing for five hours. And I, I, I remember I looked down on my watch and I was just like, Jesus Christ, what am I doing? What's happening to me? And um, what I realized was that my brain was trying to process too much information at the same time. My my brain was trying to react to too many things in the instant, and um, this can get a little difficult to understand. But the the way the brain processes processes information is as light. So you looking at me through this image, okay? This is like a, a like the two kilobyte, two gigabyte, whatever image that you're receiving, and you're receiving it at an individual point. So there's the individual point where you see it and your brain takes it into your mind and you process it, right? What was happening was my brain was taking up too much information for it to be effectively processed, which is where people start hearing voices, where people start seeing things, where people start doing things and not knowing what they're doing because their brain isn't able to sort everything that's going on. So... I decided that I needed to reduce the amount of information that my brain was receiving. So I put myself in my closet. I locked the closet door. I turned the light off. I, 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 at first, I put like headphones in, like I had those uh, earbuds. I put my headphones in and um, I blindfolded myself in the closet because even while I was in that closet, there was too much light entering. The the light was, uh, even the the little bit of light that was coming under the door in the closet was blinding me because my brain was trying to process everything so quickly. So I just blindfolded myself. And then um, I realized that my brain went from processing everything that I was seeing to processing everything that I was hearing. So I began to focus on an individual sound um, I turned off the AC, I turned off all the electricity in the house, and then I had my phone and I turned my phone all the way down until the lo- lowest volume, until I couldn't hear it. And then I turned it up one notch and then I focused and tried to hear what was going on. And then I turned that notch off and then I focused only on my brain. And then from there, I was able to find peace. It was like giving myself, giving my brain a rest. When I was able to give my brain a rest and go into my meditation and like start to listen to my thoughts, that's when I realized, okay, I'm not the only one who's dealt with this before. Let's start looking at the science. Um, there's a website that I messaged to you called the uh, NCBI. Hmm. Um, I still don't know what NCBI stands for. What I was looking for was scholarly journal- journals and lectures from psychologists to explain what was happening to me and um, from there I would go into the references and look at the doctors who were a part of that study and I would look into other things that they had um, worked on and studied before and then I would research the methods that they used for that so there was like this routine that I would make I would go into sensory deprivation, which is where I would turn off all the lights, blindfold myself, and then do the thing with the volume on my phone. And then I would go, uh, after I reached a state of peace, I would find some sort of article, some sort of scholarly journal. I would decipher it because if you try to read psychology, it's, it's rough. <laughs> but I would decipher it. I would find out who wrote it. I would check their previous methodology. And then I built this... Um, I built an understanding of the effect of trauma on the brain. And I think this is something that's very important. The effect of the trauma of trauma on the brain is not simply a mental thing. There is a physiological change that happens to your brain if you allow yourself to experience trauma. There is a plaque that builds up over time that does damage to your brain so they say things like people who experience severe levels of trauma will also experience or also have a higher likelihood of experiencing um alzheimer's is this called amyloid plaque i'm not entirely sure because there there could be multiple forms of it, it right there could be multiple forms of it because it's not just plaque stored in your brain it also does things like hardening your heart or closing your blood vessels. There is a restriction that takes place if you experience trauma. There's a there's a meditation that I take clients through. I'd love to show it to you. It's literally uh, it's literally one minute long. Are you interested? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, so go ahead, close your eyes. I want you to take a deep 10 second breath. I want your rib cage to fill for 10 seconds. Ready, go. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, and let it out, five, let it out, let it out, four, three, two, one, hold, hold your breath. Justin, you are an amazing person and breathe normally. Can you describe to me physiologically how you felt after I said that? Relaxed. Okay. Okay. So that, that openness, that open feeling. Okay. I'm going to do the same thing, except I'm going to make it traumatic. We're in a controlled environment. You're not going to get hurt. Okay. Go ahead and close your eyes. You're going to take a 10 second inhale, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Four, three, two, hold, and release. Four, three, two, one, hold. Why did you do that? And breathe normally. How did that feel? Literally the hair on my arm just jumped up when you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, seriously. That that that's like a that's a small example of the physiological <laughs> the physiological effect of trauma. Over time, that trauma built up, restricting your blood vessels, causing heart disease, restricting the blood vessels to your brain, and adding plaque to your brain, causing uh, various mental dysfunctions, as well as uh, uh, allowing yourself to experience like muscle restriction, like literal tightness in your muscles, and the reason why that's so important is because the very first thing that I mentioned is that someone drink water and eat food. You go into these fits of trauma and you stop realizing how your body feels and you get that sense back when you drink enough water and you eat enough food. Then you have your sensory uh, deprivation and then you go into a state of like almost a a scattering, because there is space built. So like you originally were walking down the sidewalk, then you stepped on a crack. Your mom called, her back is broken. Now you focus on the ground, trying to avoid stepping on another crack. You're not just walking down the sidewalk, you're walking down the sidewalk and you're looking for cracks. This is active energy from the brain. And this is the buildup that happened that got me to the point to where my brain could not process enough information. I was looking for so many different cracks at the same time and reacting to so many different things at the same time that my brain could no longer process all the things that I was trying to look out for. Yeah, that's the extreme of PTSD.
0: Well, not not to cut you off, but I mean, now I can see this in all things, right? So you have just think about driving uh, anybody that's listening to this you might even be driving the car right now right mm-hmm. think about how quickly people fly off the handle you hear road rage right but you're driving down the road you're you know going 50 60 70 miles an hour you've got other cars you've got signs you've got maybe weather and all these things coming at you right mm-hmm. you're a lot more amped you're you're more um, you're a lot more likely to fly off the handle, you know, because you're dealing with all of this input, the overwhelming sensation of stress being placed on you through input of information, but take it even a step further than that. Right. We are as divided as a country, as a world, as I've ever been. I mean, I'm 35, so it's not, I guess the huge, it's not the biggest sample size, but it's, you know, I can't remember a time like this. And I hear from a lot of you know, my elders that this is as bad as they've ever seen it. Coincidence that we've got more information being thrown at us than ever. I mean, you can come up with all these other reasons why we're at each other's throat and they all probably have some validity, but I mean, the internet, social media, all these things, they're hitting us and we are at level eight all day, every day, you know, and then here comes the question from your wife or your kid or your boss or your coworker, whatever it is, that that really should not make you upset, angry at all. And it literally throws you over the edge. I've been there. I mean, that's, that's why I'm saying all of this, but I can see it right. As, As micro as driving a car every day, I think we can all feel that we're just a little bit more on edge and then how that translates into everyday life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely yeah that's i'm so glad because like you're you're saying to me what i teach people so like you're learning right now you're, oh, you're receiving the information and i i love that man that makes me feel really good because like i um i do freedom coaching now and i help other people and to as a part of my practice i have to know that the things that i'm saying are being uh, communicated communicated effectively so like thank you so much um what you do in those points of frustration because frustration is real frustration is the physiological response to pain so like the same way that if you were to hit your finger with a hammer is the same thing that your brain is telling you that you feel if you're trying to process too information too much information is you can actively overstimulate or understimulate the brain's senses so that you are less reactive so that you are no so that it's harder for you to be in a state of pain and it's easier to do this with specific senses so that there's less confusion involved so like if you work with someone who's like trying to help people who have experienced PTSD one of the things that they recommend is an ice bath what sense are they working with they're working with your sense of touch what are they doing They're overstimulating your sense of touch so that you're less sensitive emotionally, reactively to your sense of touch. And this is something that I kind of touched on when we were talking before, when people were saying that um, speech is violence. Hmm. We had said this before. The reason that we understand that speech is not violence is because we've experienced real violence our scale for understanding is greater. But when it comes to violence, there are people who are behind a computer screen now from the time they were six years old to the time they become an adult. And this is their understanding of violence, okay? Um, The same thing applies for your sensory input. If you go into an ice bath and you feel that for the first time, and you become acclimated to it and you turn it into a practice, your reaction to going into an ice bath will become less. But your scale, your understanding of pain when it comes to going into an ice bath will become wider. It's, 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 the, the way that that applies to your emotions is important as well. Because there are many times when I can't just say that I'm happy because I've been happy before, but I can tell you the happy that I was before is nowhere near the happy that I am now. Sometimes I have to use the word jovial. Sometimes I have to use the word elated. Sometimes I have to use the word content because I have to properly and effectively describe the emotion that I'm feeling.
0: Do you think it's a benefit to be able to get through tough tough times effectively and there's a reason i'm asking so um what you just said i totally agree i always classify it as the worst thing you've ever been through is the worst thing you've ever been through um you know i I can think of of, you know family members let's just say you know maybe somebody that um was kind of had a different upbringing than you their challenges were different and so what to, what is the hardest thing they've ever gone through? You, you may have gone through that over and over and over again. And I try to look at those. I, I find myself illuminating that a lot, you know, sometimes more than others. And I, I'm sure there's a reason why in those moments I'm fixated on, you know, being annoyed that somebody's struggling with something or kind of being like, Oh my God, this is so horrible. And I'm like, this is like weekly. Come on let's get over this. Um, and I've had people say, Hey, well, you don't understand what they've been through. You know, it's difficult for them. And I get that, but as just somebody who's blunt and to the point, I just can't help but to ask the question that if the goal of this game of life is to keep going Mm. and it is that we have to get through things even if the hardest thing you've ever gone through is the hardest thing you've ever gone through, if you see other people who have gone through more, I don't want to say that they're right when they criticize or push you for not, I mean, it's not your fault. You've only gone through what you've ever gone through. But when those people still can't seem to understand that, hey, okay, it can be a lot worse I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm looking for an answer that's not even there, right? But I get hung up on that. Like that perturbs me. Like I'm, I'm just like, okay, I get it. You've never had to deal with this before, but guess what? There's a thousand people that have. So knowing that and knowing that we have to get through things, can you just buckle up and realize that all the rest of us have grit our teeth and bared it? Or is that an unfair position for me to maybe approach it in,
1: right? It's not that you grit your teeth and bared it. It's not that you grit your teeth and bared it. I think that was was one of my hangups for a really long time. But the final piece of this puzzle is what do you do with that new space, right? So I got one thing I'm doing, I'm walking down the street. I got two things I'm doing now, I'm looking for cracks. I got three things I'm doing now, I'm looking for cracks everywhere. And then I reduce I'm no longer looking for cracks. What the hell am I supposed to do with all this extra energy that I've built up all this extra space that I have relieved and given myself back after I stopped looking for those cracks. You see it happen with uh, drug addicts all the time. They go to rehab. They're on a schedule. They swim, they work out, they, they read, they meditate, they sing in a group and then they leave rehab And suddenly the singing, the reading, the meditation, the swimming, the exercise, they don't do that because they're not on a schedule anymore. So what do they do? They relapse, they go back to what they know. So at the end of creating this space, at the end of realizing that these these traumas aren't always going to happen after you realize that you don't have to seek trauma in everything that you do, you replace that space with a skill and you pursue it passionately. For you, when you look at that person who's experiencing that, that thing that they can't let go of, you know that you have that thing that you're passionate about and you go back to it. And for millions and millions of Americans, they lack the freedom, they, they believe they do, they lack the freedom, they lack the security And they lack the understanding of the power of having something that you're passionate about and having something that you love. So when they go back home, all they think about all day is that one thing that took them off the tracks and derailed them. Mm -hmm. Even after they meditate, they're meditating on that one thing that took them off the tracks and derailed them. This is how jujitsu is saving veterans lives because they have something that can put them in a sense where they might experience danger. And at the end of that danger, they learned a new technique. They've had a lot of fun. And here's a pivotal piece as well. They found community. Mm-hmm. They found people that they can be around and feel safe. And this combination of reap of backfilling this space that used to be filled with trauma, the the these, this backfilling is what allows a person to live in happiness. That's the work. When you find a skill and you become passionate about it and you surround yourself with other people who are passionate about that skill, not only do you allow yourself to remove energy that you used to spend considering something traumatic traumatic happening and you replace it with uh, with your positive skill, but you also find tribe you surround yourself with people who are also in the pursuit of mastery within the realm of something that truly makes them happy. So like if you go if you go to Joe Rogan right now, master podcaster. Okay? He's a happy person. Not only is he a happy person, but he joyfully tells the truth. He doesn't lie. He just can't. However, that person who's working that nine to five in a call center, they lie all the time. It's a part of their vernacular. It's a piece of who they are because they're not doing something that makes them happy. They're not not—they're not entrusting themselves to a skill that makes them happy. And that happiness doesn't show up when they go home. That person who's living an unhappy life in a call center is also living an unhappy life at home unless they found that skill, that tribe that thing that they can be passionate about doing and love doing so that they can backfill that traumatic space. Hmm.
0: Makes a lot of sense, man.
1: Saved my life.
0: I'm glad it did. Very glad that it did. It's interesting too. I've had a couple of episodes recently, um, And it's the last thing that I really wanted to ask you about. I know that you mentioned early on, right? You're an addictive personality. You had a a really heavy addiction to cannabis. Um, There's been a lot of talk about PTSD and how that can be treated through psychedelics. Um, Actually having a podcast tomorrow night with a former Microsoft executive that wrote a book called Rescuing Jill. And it's a story about how she overcame childhood-induced PTSD through the use of psilocybin and MDMA. I can personally attest that a lot of the anxieties, frustrations, um, all of the things that really, I would say, drive me nuts, some of the stuff that we've even talked about that I've exposed myself as to being a little bit of an egomaniac at times, um, but I've, I've personally felt those things suppressed through the use of psychedelics. And I haven't ever had a true therapy session where it was guided, um, but I just released an episode with a friend of mine, uh, Josh, Josh Savage, who's actually doing a documentary right now down in the Amazon where he's been documenting the you know, tribes, um, the Pujanawa tribe, and the effects of deforestation and capitalism on their culture, which is really rooted heavily in plant-based medicine. Um, And I've had Dr. Mike Hart on, who's talked about how he's actually leveraged ketamine in depression therapy. And I'm somebody who certainly doesn't think all shoes fit every person, right? And so really was interested in your perspective on, you know, a, have you had personal experience trying psychedelics to cope with PTSD? How did that work for you? And maybe just your overall thoughts on this movement that really seems to be pushing in that direction, whether it be through MAPS or you know some of the work that uh, Paul Stamets has been doing. There's just a really hot topic, and I think it's important getting a perspective of somebody who's really gone through it.
1: I think that in severe cases, right? Like if the ice bath doesn't work, if the sauna doesn't work, if, if the recordings and the uh, cognitive dissonance and the uh, EDMR, if those things don't work, then allowing your brain to experience pure oddity, a unique experience that it cannot discern, is one of the greatest things that you can do to release yourself from the story of PTSD. Um, using mushrooms as an example, as a what a, what a mushroom what mushrooms do and many psycho, many psychedelics do is it puts your mind in a place where it is not fully in understanding. Of what's taking place. It puts your brain, it it, like if you have your five senses, right? Like the image that you see of me is made of your sight, you see me, Mm -hmm. and you hear me, right? If this is your sight, this is your hearing, and your brain did that with the amount of sight and hearing that it was using. And suddenly you saw my colors more and you heard my sight, you heard my sounds less. Does that make sense? Yeah. Doing that with the brain forces the brain to discern whether or not you're experiencing something that's safe. Mm -hmm. And if you do that and your brain realizes that it's safe, you have a new memory of a new event of something that began confusing, um, something that disillusioned you, something that dissociated you, and you still came out on the other side of that experience feeling safe. So you have this this new memory that helps you to feel healed. Now, there are other uh, psychedelics such as MDMA, Molly, or ecstasy that will force your body to express higher levels of things like serotonin or oxytocin that will make you feel that that experience. You remember when we did our meditation Mm -hmm. and you were like, wow, I feel more open.
0: Oxytocin, right?
1: Yes, there's oxytocin and there's serotonin and there's dopamine. And those types of releases are the same experience that you felt when you were like, man, I feel more open. Mm -hmm. It's that same exact feeling, except times 10, 20, 50, 100, depending on how much of the medicine that you use. I am 100% for not just the legalization for the research, but the, the legalization of these substances within controlled environments so that we can give veterans the opportunity to experience something that will set them free with the release of serotonin, with the release of oxytocin, the things that they, the, the experiences that they had, because a lot of, uh, for a lot of people who experience severe PTSD, they don't experience true intimacy with other human beings for example um do you have a brother i have 3 have you ever had a moment with your brother when you just realize hey that that guy that guy fucking cares about me mm-hmm. i can call that guy and i can tell that guy something and know that if i need someone to listen to me he'll just listen Yep. A lot of these veterans, a lot of these people who've experienced severe trauma, when they say, you don't know what I've been through, they're also saying, I've never been heard. I've never been heard in an intimate setting. I've never felt so much care that I knew that I could tell my story. And psychedelics are something that allow for people to feel that. And I don't want to isolate it to veterans. Um women experience a completely unique trauma to men. There's a reason why men and women are so disconnected, especially in the space that we're in now. The physical fear that women experience in their lives, the, the fact that they have to be home before dark or some, some man at his natural weight at 185 pounds would be able to take them out of their day or some man at work, would be able to talk down to them and there's no way that they could physically defend themselves. Women are dealing with this all the time. Gay men are dealing with this all the time. This this trauma thing is a universal problem that's not just keeping us from living our lives as humans but it's keeping us from connecting. And if the legalization of the medical use under the right setting of these, me, of these uh, psychedelics or these drugs is what can cure that problem, and I've seen it work, then yeah, that, that's something that we should definitely do. I'm a, the reason why I wear this is I have a, a, an offering that I provide. I'm called a rave shaman. A rave shaman is someone who can go into a rave and find someone who's spiraling while on psychedelics and release them from that spiral. And I don't know if you've had heard of someone having a bad trip. Hmm. But what happens is they get gripped within that traumatic story and they cannot be released up from it. It happens most intensely if someone takes more than what they expected or if they were afraid of going into that situation in the first place. And what i can do is i can listen without judgment and i can share with that person the intimacy to make sure that they know that they were heard and then i release them from that traumatic experience the reason why kids are dying at these raves the reason why kids are dying like a what they call it juice world you mm-hmm. know what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. It happened in Houston or something like that. Uh, uh, The Astro World with uh, Travis Scott. Yeah, yeah. The reason why kids are dying at events like this is because the trauma that they are experiencing is amplified by their brains while they are having these psychedelic experiences and people aren't taking the right courses of action to simply help that person breathe and realize that they are in a safe space with people who care about them and want them to continue on. That's why I became a rave shaman. That's why I started going to raves and going to these different events, because I experienced it myself. I saw the hell that I had been through all over again at a spiritual level, and I lived there. But because of the work that I had done before I had gone there, I knew how to get myself out of it. And I got out of it I looked around and I was like, holy shit, this is why these kids are dying. So yes, there's a danger involved, but along with that danger, there's someone who can live 50, 60 years of a happy life with good intentions. They can find a partner. They can find a job that they love. They can be passionate and they can be excited about waking up every day. Depression is not a life sentence. PTSD is not a life sentence. And if people know that they can live and be happy and get their lives back. You know what I mean?
0: I'm hopeful that we were able to do a little bit of that today.
1: I I hope so, man. I'm almost in tears. I'm so like, so, so for me, as I move forward in this journey of healing and giving and sharing these tools with people, what I really need is more people. Um, I need to be networked into the right spaces. I need to be able to talk to the right people so that I can offer these conversations in the right way to the right people. So I'm super grateful for you having me on this channel. Um, My Instagram is the way I connect most with people. Um, Shaka underscore Judah 10p. And like I said, I don't I'm not one of those guys who asks for money. I don't need money. I need people. I need people who can put me in front of the right people who can hear this message so that they can know that they're not in the midst of a death sentence. Because that's where I felt like I was. I felt like I would always worry about whether or not something bad would happen. I felt like my girlfriend would always cheat on me. I felt like I would always look at the street corner and wonder whether the car that was coming around the corner would hit me so I wouldn't be in pain anymore. Now, I don't feel like that anymore. I am still changed. I can never work in like a corporate setting. I can't, you know, be behind a computer for nine hours a day. You know, there's a reason why I'm disabled, but I can live happily. And I want to give that gift to other people.
0: I hope nothing more than everybody that tunes into this follows along your journey taps in and uh, there's some personal connections that I want to make for you. I don't know if you follow Evan Britton at all. Um, but he's a friend of mine. He's been on the podcast a couple of times and I'm actually having him back on here at the end of June, early July. And his story, although much different in a lot of ways is very similar in that, you know, he was a professional athlete. He was an NFL Offensive lineman. He was a high draft pick, multimillionaire, had all the success that you could possibly imagine, accolades as a professional athlete, and he left the league broken, mentally, physically, had a, a drug addiction, depression, you name it. And he has changed his life completely through meditation, breath work, um, all, all psychedelics, all the things that we've talked about today. And I think as your message continues to build and everything you're doing grows, he's somebody that just even for you to be able to tap in, follow him, his message. But I think, um, you know, I'd love to be able to connect you guys directly. Uh, I think you both would add a lot to each other and have a very similar mindset on things. So I, I'm very grateful that I've had an opportunity to meet you and, um, this conversation has been more than enlightening for myself and, uh, I'm very, 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 very thankful for it.
1: Word makes me happy. <laughs> these are still available, right? People can grab these? Yes, they are. I, um, all they have to do is let me know that they need one. They are $35, and I mail them directly to the person. Um, I, get a, I get the order, and I mail it out. I want to
0: see a bunch of these things. I want to, people start tagging me in these tag tag us in these i i would love nothing more than to like just get random messages over the next few months of people wearing their work makes me happy shirt so thank you of course brother it's always a pleasure and let's let this not be the last time we got to keep doing these
1: certainly not my uh my partner wants to set up a, a healing center she's uh i've been blessed to run into someone who's got the same vision that i do uh right now she's at a a retreat for business and uh we're we're planning on opening a a center to help uh to help people who suffered and uh, i'm super excited about it i can't wait to show you where we go it's a pleasure my man thank you so
0: much